Gospel. Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. This morning, in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we are in a section that runs from chapters 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. And we come this morning to what many consider to be a controversial subject, which is Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. And so let's read verses 31 and 2 from Matthew 5, where Jesus said, and he's speaking to his disciples now, he said, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, let me just say right at the outset of this study that if there's any confusion on the subject of marriage and divorce, it's not due to the fact that God hasn't made himself clear. You know, so often when a subject in the Bible is labeled controversial, it's just a euphemism. For, I don't like what God has said on this subject, and I really don't intend to live it in my life. And so pastors accommodate that, unfortunately, some pastors. And they slap the label controversial on difficult passages, which serves to kind of muddy the waters. It gives people the impression this topic is so confusing. There's so many different ideas and interpretations. You know what? You really can't understand it, so therefore it doesn't really have to be dealt with. Let's just move on and ignore it. But here's the problem with that. First of all, it's disobedience to what God said. God has commanded us, especially who are pastors and teachers in the body of Christ, that we are supposed to teach the whole counsel of God. Everything God said. Jesus himself said, man shall not live alone. Uh, man shall not live by bread alone, I should say. But by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God, not just the stuff we like, not just the stuff that lets me live the way I want. Every word. Jesus handed his ministry over to his disciples, of which we are also the recipients of. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said, teaching them to observe what? All things that I have commanded you. You see, the church is the moral conscience of society. Jesus made that clear in verse 13 of chapter 5 when he called us salt. Salt back then had several purposes, but one of the main purposes it had was because there was no refrigeration. They would heavily salt the surface of their meats to retard bacteria growth and decay. And Jesus is saying that we... As the moral conscience of society, we have been called by God to retard the moral decay of a corrupting world. And we do that by declaring everything God has said. But when pastors stop teaching all that God has said, or water it down so as to soften its impact on believers and unbelievers alike, on believers, because we don't want them to leave the church, if we start hitting these subjects, you know, one pastor said when he was encouraged by another pastor to start taking church discipline seriously, he said, where would I even start? Everybody's living in sin in my church. Well, that's a problem, all right? So some pastors don't want people to leave the church so they soften these things. And oftentimes, it's uh, to placate unbelievers who hear about the church and know that, hey, this church 
you know, they really kind of let you live the way you want, and they're kind of soft on things, and they're real loving, and they don't talk against sin. And so the hope is that the people will come to the church if they soften the message. But when you do that, the result is because we are the moral conscience of society, we are salt. If we, don't, if we lose our saltiness, as Jesus said, and we are not that retarding influence in the world for good to keep decay and sin from just running rampant, the result is that society begins to rot and decay morally until it crumbles and falls. And folks, we are seeing this very thing happening today right before our very eyes. Today we are facing problems that threaten the very existence of our nation. Sexual sins like homosexuality, adultery, fornication, and pedophilia, all fueled by pornography and a pervasive mindset of tolerance has filled our land and turned America into a moral cesspool. America is now responsible for most of the pornography that goes out into the world. The abortion holocaust, and that's what it is, folks, it's a holocaust, stands as a grim and grotesque reminder of how much we have devalued life in this country. Americans have sacrificed their future on the altar of selfishness by aborting their children so that they could continue to enjoy sexual immorality without consequences and continue to have the freedom to do what they want, when they want, and with whom they want without the hassle of kids messing that up. But in so doing, 50 million future Americans have been exterminated. An entire generation that would have paid the Social Security for the elderly if they'd have been allowed to live and to grow and would have kept our American culture intact from being taken over by the colonization of Islam. Because mark it down, hardcore Islamics are wanting to turn every nation they enter into into a Muslim nation. Look at Western Europe. They are turning Western Europe into a Muslim nation. How? Because they have 8 to 10 children per family. Americans are having 1.8 kids per family. That's not enough to perpetuate a culture. We are slowly losing our culture. England's much worse. France, much worse. But we're on the way. How stupid, selfish, and short-sighted we have become as Americans. But that's not the only problem by far. I mean, our inner cities are war zones where life is so bad that mothers are afraid to let their kids play outside for fear that they might get hit by a stray bullet from some gang incident. Gangs, drug dealers, and pimps own many of the streets in U.S. cities and peddle violence, drugs, and prostitution to a generation that's growing up without God and without hope. Our criminal justice system is so overloaded and our jails so overcrowded that the system is releasing convicts from prison early to make room for new convicts. We just can't build enough prisons. Joblessness, homelessness, alcoholism, drug abuse, and domestic violence all bear witness to the fact that the once beautiful American dream of, of a nation of opportunity and blessing has all but become the American nightmare. The question is, what has happened to us? How could things have gotten this bad? Well, one author put it well when he said, and I quote, When God fades from a nation's conscience... One can justify almost anything. And then the author goes on to talk about how Americans have tried to camouflage what God calls sin with new terminologies to soothe our conscience and justify our actions. He said, God said, thou shalt not murder. But Americans gave murder a new name, a woman's right to choose, and indifferently abort a million and a half babies a year, 50 million since Roe v. Wade. God calls it drunkenness. We call it alcoholism, a social disease. 
God calls it sodomy. We call it homosexuality, an alternative lifestyle. God calls it perversion. We call it pornography, adult entertainment. God calls it immorality. We call it the new morality. And then he concluded by saying this. He said, America once legislated against those things that God said were wrong. But gradually we began to tolerate, then practice, then condone openly and even promote that which was once unthinkable. The perversion and degradation that once made us blush are now being flaunted before the eyes of a nation that was conceived in the fear of God. It has happened little by little, right before our eyes, not because someone forced it on us, but seemingly because we did not care. We just didn't care, end quote. You know, whenever I talk on this kind of subject, I can't help but remember something that happened probably at the end of the 80s. Uh, when Pastor Joe uh, Wright uh, of Central Christian Church was asked to open the, the new session of the Kansas Senate, you know how they do that? They get their token minister in there to offer up a politically generic prayer. You know how that works, right? Well, they thought Pastor Joe was going to just give more of the same, you know, just offering up the usual politically correct generalities. But here's what they heard that day as Pastor Joe opened up that session of the Kansas Senate. He prayed, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it politics. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Amen. Well, I can't tell you how many legislators got up and walked out. And afterwards were interviewed. How dare he say these things? Who does he think he is? I think he thinks he's a man of God. And we need more men and women like Pastor Joe to stand up and call an evil culture to repentance like a John the Baptist or an Elijah. Look, the Old Testament scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, God holds Israel up as an example to the entire world. He called them a light to the world. They didn't wind up becoming that, but that was his intention for them. In fact, in Isaiah, he called them, he said, Israel, my glory. What does that mean? It means if you want to know how God deals with a nation, you look at Israel. Because they were the prototype. They were the example. They were to be the shining light on a hill, to, a beacon to call the rest of the world to the God of Israel. Because God said, if a nation, any nation makes me their God and obeys what I have said, I will bless them beyond anything they could imagine. And so as God is about ready to lead Israel now into the promised land, this land of milk and honey, a land much like God led our forefathers into, right? And in fact, as we read this, you can plug in America to what God says to Israel. In Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 9, God says, If you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in His ways, the Lord will establish you as His holy people 
as he swore he would do. Then all the nations of the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord and they will stand in awe of you. Wasn't that our heritage at one time? When God took us from obscurity, brought us across an ocean, planted us in a good land and began to bless us because we were a nation under God. We believed in our God and we stood for his principles and obeyed his commandments. And we grew to a mighty nation, the mightiest in the face of the earth. And every other nation stood in awe of our nation, just like Israel. The Lord goes on. The Lord will give you prosperity in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. Blessing with many children, numerous livestock, and abundant crops. The Lord will send rain at the proper time from his rich treasury in in the heavens. And will bless all the work you do. You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from them. If you listen to these commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, and if you carefully obey them, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will always be on top and never at the bottom. You must not turn away from any of the commandments I am giving you today, nor follow after other gods and worship them. And then God pronounces the curses for disobedience. I'm not going to get into them all. I'll just start at verse 40 and read to 46. See if we're not dealing with this right now in our nation's history. The foreigners living among you will become stronger and stronger while you become weaker and weaker. They will lend money to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head, you will be the tail. If you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and to obey the commandments and decrees he has given you, all these curses will pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed. You know, our economy is about ready to collapse. You realize that, of course, from years of excess and entitlement spending. In fact, they tell me that every dollar we spend today, 40 cents of it is borrowed from China. What did God say? If you turn your back on me, you will borrow from every nation, but you yourselves will loan to no one. We have gone from a, a creditor to a debtor nation. We are in serious trouble. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, yeah, but what does all of this have to do with marriage and divorce? (laughs) In a word, folks, everything. Everything. You see, all the corruption and decay in our society can be traced back to one basic problem, which is the turning of our backs on God and his commandments. This then led to the breakdown of marriage through divorce, which is responsible for the breakdown of the family unit, which is the building block of any healthy society. The family begins with marriage, of course, which was intended by God to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, a commitment of love and fidelity, listen, so that the children could have a stable environment to grow up in. And when you couple that with God's command to parents, starting with Israel, to diligently teach our children about him, that becomes a formula for a strong family in a strong nation. Listen to what God said to parents as our responsibility in raising our kids. He said, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home. When you are on the road, when you are going to to bed, and when you are getting up, tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Now, God wasn't talking literally there. 
course, the Jews picked up on that, and that's where the practice of wearing phylacteries came from. What was a phylactery? Well, it was a box, and inside they stuffed scripture written on parchment. And then they literally tied it to their head, so they walk around with this box on their forehead. And of course, if you were a Pharisee, you wanted to look extra holy, you'd enlarge your phylactery, which Jesus condemned. So you'd have this Kleenex box hanging off your forehead. <laughs> I've got to say, no, I don't want you to literally do that. I want, you to, I want your, my word to dominate your thinking. Because when it does, it will control your living. So tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. Surround your lives, your families, with my word. Teach your children fervently about me. See, all this was intended by God to provide a good and godly environment for the children to grow up in. So that they could develop emotionally and spiritually into the next generation of strong, healthy adults and godly parents. That's what God intended. How are we doing? How are we doing as a nation? We all Israel did. But how are we doing as a nation? You know, several years ago, Christianity Today magazine published an article by a psychiatrist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School named Armin Nikolai. In the article, Dr. Nikolai had this to say about the effects of divorce on children. He said, and I quote, Certain trends prevalent today will incapacitate the family, destroy its integrity, and cause its members to suffer such crippling emotional conflicts that they will become an intolerable burden to society. If any one factor influences the character development and emotional stability of an individual, it is the quality of the relationship he or she experiences as a child with both parents. And he underlines the word both. Conversely, if people suffering from severe non-organic emotional illness have one experience in common, it is the absence of a parent through death or divorce. Dr. Nikolai goes on to say, the trend towards quick and easy divorce and the ever-increasing divorce rate subjects more and more children to physically and emotionally absent parents. The divorce rate has risen 700% in this country and it continues to rise. There is now one divorce for every 1.8 marriages. Over 1 million children a year are involved in divorce cases, and 13 million children under 18 now have one or both parents missing. He goes on to suggest that if we wind up with a society without families, and he's talking about traditional families now, we will have such mental, these are his words, mental and emotional monsters in the next generation that there will be no way possible for society to cope with them. Well, you see, Satan knows this only too well. And he knows if he's going to bring down a nation, he has to bring down the families within that nation. And to bring down the family, he has to start by targeting marriage. And his strategy is simple. It always has been. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Jesus acknowledged this when he said in Matthew 12, 25, every kingdom or nation divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house, and the word house there means family, divided against itself will not stand. Satan's strategy has always been divide and conquer because he knows there is strength and unity. And Jesus said against my church, and of course the church is nothing more than a group of families that have come together. Against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Unity. When we are unified, we are strong. When we are divided against each other as a church, as a nation, or as a family, we are weak, and Satan can bring us down. 
It all starts with marriage, though. He targets marriages. How does Satan divide a couple? What does he use to bring down and destroy a marriage? Well, there are many things he can use and does use. Let me give you a few of the more common ones that I've seen. Okay? How about debt? How about debt? You know, Larry Briquette, who is now with the Lord, at one time in this country was the premier financial advisor in America. He said something years ago that I watched in a video series he did. Something that I've never forgotten. In fact, I wrote it down. I've shared it with you before. Let me read it again. Listen to what he said. He said, and I quote, Most young couples today want to have in three years what it took their parents 30 years to acquire. So they buy a house that's bigger than they need, a car, a lawnmower, washers and dryers, etc. Until by the fourth or fifth year of marriage, they are so far in debt and the financial pressures are so great that all they are doing is fighting over money and the bills that they decide it isn't worth it anymore. I can't stand my wife and she can't stand me. If I could just get out of this and start all over again, everything would be much better. And that's often what happens, Larry said. In 52% of the cases in America, in the fifth year of marriage, couples get a divorce because of debt. About 92% of all Americans say that they believe what destroyed their marriage was financial pressure. So what do they do? Well, Larry says they go ahead and get divorced and go out and find two more people exactly like the two they divorced. They marry them, and within two years, you have two more couples now doing exactly the same thing that caused the first marriage to dissolve. In fact... In 75% of the cases of the second marriage, it will dissolve in less than five years. For exactly the same reasons the first marriage failed, financial pressures due to debt, end quote. And don't these credit card companies want to start our kids early with a mindset that says, hey, don't wait. Uh, if you want something, just use our card and get it right now. Every time my kids hit 18, I got a boatload of mail from credit card companies Asking if they wanted to have a credit card. Most of the time, they never saw that mail. <laughs> I intercepted it. No, they wouldn't have gotten a credit card without me. But see, the mindset, they want to get these kids used to the idea of, of accumulating debt. Well, they make money. The devil's behind, you know, not that I'm bringing a credit card. If you're working for a credit card company, I apologize. I don't mean to say you're, you're the devil or anything, but the devil is, is using that mindset, isn't he? He wants to, and then it gets into marriage, and kids think, well, you know, we deserve what our parents are. We work hard. And they overextend themselves and pile on the debt, and then, of course, the pressures of money problems just destroy the marriage. How about another one? What else does Satan use? How about lust? All right? How about lust? People today are not only lusting for possessions, they are lusting for people. I mean, that, this has always been. It's just our culture has made it so acceptable and so easy now to lust on a scale that was formerly impossible. And we talked last week about how we are living in a sex-crazed society where sex is being used to sell everything from breath mints to shaving cream, right? You can't go anywhere today without being bombarded with sexual images of some kind or another on billboards, on TV, in magazines, at the shopping mall, Right? As advertisers try to arouse lust in us to buy whatever products they attach the sexual imagery to. The sexual desire is being tremendously fueled today by internet pornography and chat room romances. Where more and more people are falling in love online and chucking their marriage as a result. You know, 
All this emphasis on casual sex has had a devastating effect on young people in our society today who have grown up with all of this and have been conditioned to look at sex as a purely biological function to be satisfied when the urge hits the same way you would satisfy the urge for food, water, or sleep without any moral implications whatsoever. Just a biological function. Don't uh, make it more than it is. I turned on a panel discussion Friday evening, and uh, the topic of the segment they happened to be discussing was friends with benefits. Friends with benefits. The Urban Dictionary defines the term friends with benefits this way. Two friends who have a sexual relationship without being emotionally involved. Typically two good friends who have casual sex without a monogamous relationship or any kind of commitment. A safe relationship that mimics a real partnership but is void or greatly lacking jealousy or other such emotions that come with a serious relationship, end quote. You mean like the emotion of love? Very sad today. You know, along with a casual view of sex has come a casual view of divorce. That's where it goes. That's where it leads. Which brings us to the third thing the devil will use to tear marriages apart. Selfishness rooted in self-love. You know, there are two kinds of love operating in a Christian marriage. Self-love and God's love. The Bible calls God's love agape. The word agape means a selfless, others-centered love, right? So it's actually the antithesis of self-love. God's love is others-centered. Self-love is totally self-centered. Self-love is rooted in, our, rooted in our fallen nature. God's love is rooted in our new nature. These two loves, whether you know it or not, constantly compete for control of our lives. Every day, all day long, in different situations, we are being made to choose, am I going to be selfish here and do what pleases me, or am I going to be unselfish and do what pleases someone else? And of course, if you're married, this is a big one in marriage, isn't it? This is a big one in marriage. See, God's word says if you walk in the spirit, and part of that means to die to self, right? To die to self. If you walk in the spirit, God says you will allow my love to dominate your life and fill your marriage. However, when couples choose rather to walk in self-love, well, I can't see how the marriage won't eventually end in divorce. We are selfish by nature. And we give in to our fallen inclinations, which are selfish at their core, and live selfishly in marriage, it's only a matter of time before that marriage is ripped apart. Because marriage is all about giving and working together and compromise. Now, God's love makes that very possible. Even unbelievers, though, can have a measure of selfless love in their marriages. I mean, I know unbelieving marriages that work fairly well. And I know Christian marriages that don't work at all. Because unbelievers are doing the very thing God has commanded, whether they know it or not. They're being selfless in marriage, and often Christians are doing what God has not commanded and being selfish in their marriages. That's why the divorce rate for Christian marriages, which in 1871, by the way, was one divorce for every 1,000 marriages, has now mirrored the divorce rate in the world. But again, if self-love is the focus and driving force in your life, when the going gets tough, divorce becomes a good thing, right? I mean, let's face it. As some, uh, as some would say, it's liberation from slavery and unhappiness. And doesn't God want me happy? Oh, give me a break. I want to just regurgitate when I hear Christians use that logic. Doesn't God want me happy? 
Look, I'm not saying God is purposely out to make you unhappy. What he's really concerned about is that you be holy, so you be useful for his glory, is that you represent him in a way that, that honors him and, and shows this world what he's all about. That's what he's really after. But people say, no, 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 it's a good thing. If things get rough in the marriage, God wants me happy. Once again, I'll, I'll be free to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. This is a big thing in the world. To the world, divorce becomes something to celebrate because it is the unshackling, you know, the, 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 the setting free the captives kind of a mentality, right? Uh, I'm free again to do whatever I want. It's a good thing. I should celebrate divorce. This has even led to a new line of greeting cards. Happy divorce cards. Happy divorce cards you can buy in stores and online have cropped up everywhere in the last few years. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Hallmark greeting card people. Okay? There's others, believe me. I'll give you just two examples from their line of happy divorce cards. First one goes like this. Think of your former marriage as a record album. It was full of music, both happy and sad. But what's important now is you, underlined, the recently released hot new single. You're going to be at the top of the charts. Happy divorce. Or getting divorced can be very healthy. Watch how it improves your circulation. Best of luck. Folks, we have become a generation that is glorifying one of the most painful, devastating experiences a person or a family could ever go through. And listen to me. I realize that sometimes divorce is inevitable in cases of abuse and or continual unfaithfulness. I understand that. But even then, then divorce should never be treated as a happy thing. It is the tearing apart of two lives that God has not only joined, the Hebrew says, he has glued together. And that is not something to celebrate, regardless of how, of how happy a face we try to put on it. It's never a happy thing in the eyes of God. You know, it's always a very sad thing for me to watch something as beautiful as a marriage die. You know, I've been blessed as a pastor to stand before many couples who are entering into marriage together and as I officiate at these wedding ceremonies, I get to stand before these couples and share with them what God has said about marriage. And I see their faces just beaming with love for each other as they enter into this new phase of their life together. And after I talk a little bit about marriage and I have them face each other and they re read their vows to one another as they pledge to stay by each other's side, no matter what happens, I'm going to stick by you. Sickness, health, good times, bad times. I'm going to stay by your side. I, I've committed myself to you. For better or for worse, as long as I shall live. And I, and I really believe that most of them mean that at that moment. But then after the ceremony is over and they have to enter into the real world, and what you have is two sinners saved by grace, Christians now, trying to come together. If they don't recognize, look, it's not just about me anymore. I have a spouse now. I can't do whatever I, I want whenever I want to do it. It's about working together, compromise. It's about me dying to self, walking in the Spirit, and so on. If they don't do that, what begins to happen is you have two people constantly butting heads for dominance, trying to control each other. And pretty soon those feelings of love begin to wear off and are replaced with feelings of resentment, unhappiness, and then hatred. It's always sad to watch something as beautiful as a marriage die. And sometimes, folks, it's not a single blow like infidelity that kills it. Sometimes a marriage dies slowly from years of neglect and unkind words. As someone has said, 
Many marriages are like the mighty oaks which line the ridges of the Rockies. They withstand winter and summer storms year after year, only to be felled by an attack of little beetles. I think that's so true. There's a lot of marriages that have survived a long time and have withstood many storms in life, only to be finally brought down by years of careless and unkind words. With many marriages, it's death by a thousand cuts. All right, well, what is the answer to all these problems that we face as individuals and as a nation? What is the answer to my problem? I don't care what the problem is. The answer is the same. It's God. I don't care what problem you dragged in here with you this morning. The solution is always the same. You need to get your life right with God. Because as you get your life right with him, and it starts by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not just going to church and giving God lip service. I'm talking about getting on your knees and turning control of your life. Lord Jesus, I believe who you are, the Son of God who came down from heaven and lived among us and went to the cross and died for my sins and three days later rose from the dead. And now I am turning over my life to you. You are going to be now my master. I'm going to be your slave. You are going to call the shots. I'm going to obey what you have to say to me. That's where it all starts, guys. And even we Christians who have done that, we can slide back into selfishness. We can begin to do what pleases us instead of what pleases God. And when that happens, our lives begin to fall apart. And marriage is a prime example. What we need to do is turn back to God into the principles and commandments that he has given us in his word. And it starts with God's people, right? Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayers from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Look, it's not always easy to obey what God has said on a given subject, especially when it comes to something as difficult as marriage. But listen, obedience to God is always the best. It brings him the most glory, and I'm convinced it will allow him to do his best for our lives. Not always give us the easiest path, but give us the right path. So next week, we will study what Jesus said here in verses 31 and 2. See, I tricked you a little bit. I had you read that. I knew we weren't going to get there. And here's the deal. Here's why. We've only laid the groundwork today given kind of an introductory message because what Jesus had to say here about marriage and divorce is so important it has to be seen against the backdrop of what divorce does in a family in particular or in a nation in general. I mean, we can't really just land on these two verses and rip them out of context and just present them without really seeing them against the backdrop of what the impact on society will be if we don't obey these things. Of course, we don't need much in the way of illustration to show us that. Just watch the news every night. But let me just say this in closing. Maybe you're here this morning and you have gone through a divorce. Maybe it wasn't your fault. Maybe your spouse was unfaithful. Or maybe you were unfaithful and it was you were the one that actually ended your marriage. What am I saying? Am I saying that God has cut you off now? That God wants nothing to do with you? He's turned his back on you? Not at all. Not at all. As we said last week when we studied what Jesus had to say about adultery. Divorce like adultery is a serious sin. But listen, it is not an unforgivable sin. And let me just remind you one more time before we close here. What was the purpose that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount for? And especially this section from verses 21 to 48 of chapter 5. Was Jesus giving us 
commandments here that if we follow them, we're going to be good enough to earn heaven? See, that's what the scribes and Pharisees taught, didn't they? They went around. See, what they had done was they had taken God's standard, which was an internal standard, by the way, and they had driven it purely outward into outward rules and regulations. So if they hadn't murdered anybody, if they hadn't actually physically committed adultery with somebody, I'm righteous in the eyes of God. Jesus said, have you hated? Have you lusted? Because in the eyes of God, you've already committed murder and adultery. See, what Jesus is doing is he's driving it way back up where it belongs. So high, guys, listen, that we could never really keep it faithfully. God's standard is perfect. We are fallen sinners. How are we ever going to get up there and live perfectly as fallen sinners? Jesus isn't giving us these principles and commandments that we might obey them to be righteous. He is telling us, if you want to be righteous, you better stop looking to yourself. You better stop offering God self-effort and say, look, I can't do it, Lord. Your standards are too high. I mean, is there any other way to heaven except by me being good enough? Because I can't be good enough. Yes. It's me, Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. So if you're sitting here this morning and you have failed in your walk with God in some way, or in your life if you've been divorced, or you've done some other things that Jesus said here that is sin, guess what? He is not telling us these things to condemn us. He said, I didn't come into the world to what? Condemn the world. I came into the world that the world through me might be saved. He is not telling us these things to condemn us. He's saying, look, if you're a failure in life because you have failed to live up to what God has said, that means you're a sinner. If you acknowledge that and come to me, I forgive sinners. If a person will put their faith in me, I will take their sin upon myself. Die, and I've died for those sins. And I'll give you my righteousness. A righteousness that is perfect and comes from God. The only righteousness that God will let into heaven in the first place. So guys, what Jesus is basically teaching here is this. If you have failed... Now, let's use the context of divorce because he's talking about that. If your marriage has failed, what is he saying? He is saying, there's forgiveness. But you come to me and you get your life right with me. And you stop playing games. And you take my word seriously. And you get on your knees every day and you start your day with a simple prayer. God, have mercy on me today. God, fill me with your spirit today. Give me grace to walk closely with you today. Because only you can give me the strength to live the life you want me to live. And I guarantee you, if you take the words of Christ with that mindset, this sermon will actually be the greatest blessing in your life because it will turn you to God. Paul said... When I am weak, then I am what? I'm really strong. That's what the whole, the whole thing with this sermon is all about, to show us how weak we are, that we might draw close to God every day for his strength, right? Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word doesn't condemn us. Your word encourages our Yes, it convicts us, as well it should, Lord. But that conviction is not condemnation. The devil condemns. Your spirit convicts. Condemnation makes us want to run from you like Adam and Eve to hide because we have sinned. We are ashamed. Your conviction draws us close to you and says, Child, I'm ready. Whenever you are, when you're ready to get your life right with me and you get serious about walking with me every day, I will strengthen you. I will bless you and I will use you. 
Sin is not anything to play with. Sin is nothing, Lord, for us to take lightly. This culture we live in has said sin is no big deal. In fact, there is no such thing as sin. I can do whatever seems right in my own eyes. And Lord, you are telling us right now, yes, it is a big deal. And no, you can't do whatever you think is right in your own eyes. You've got to obey what I have said. And if we seek to be honest with you, Lord, surrender to your will, you will give us grace. So, Lord, thank you that your word, it is so awesome. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Give us grace to do that. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.